I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I had my first allotment when I was age 14. That was a very long time ago. In fact, it was in the 1970s. I haven't had an allotment continuously since that time. I've dipped in and out, but my most recent allotments I've had now for about, oh, 25 years. And in that time, it's gone from being a piece of grass leveled by the council's digger. I had no idea what was on it before, but something nasty into my now well-loved and cherished plot that has reached an extraordinary level of fertility after years of effort and investment. And I love it. There's something special about growing your own food, starting it from seeds, raising transplants, bringing it from plot to plate. It grounds me, connects me to what I eat and connects me to a long lineage of farmers from whom I'm descended. So I'm carrying on the family tradition in my own small way. And I know I'm not the only one who feels so positively about allotments. I think for me, one of the things that I would say, if it, one of the most important things I grow at my allotment really is myself. They just hit every single need that we kind of have. Open space, wildlife, you know, community, diversity, provision of our own needs, healthy food, everything. Yeah, if I can spend my time during the day growing stuff that's going to sustain my, my body and my mind, that's the biggest thing for me. It's National Allotment Week, a time to celebrate our country's vast network of allotment plots and reinvest in our own dedication to growing fruit and veg. So for this week's show, we're focusing on exactly that. We're taking a wander through a variety of allotments, getting a behind-the-scenes look at the techniques growers use to get the best out of their crops, and we're examining the ways allotments help connect us to the food we eat, and have done so for about 200 years. To start things off, I'll be taking you back to my own allotment in Woking to let you in on my various successes and failures this growing season. Then we're stopping by Wisley's student and community allotments to have a look at the different approaches taken there. And finally, garden historian and writer Twigs Way is stopping by the pod to tell us the backstory of how allotments became commonplace here in the UK. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Today we're standing in my allotment in Woking and it's a beautiful day, overcast, but it's not raining and it's not cold. So it's a perfect day for vegetables to grow and for doing gardening. We were last here in my allotment in March 
And uh, now in high summer, it's time to come back and see how things have developed. Back in March, I was looking at my onions, which I planted from onion sets. Those are little tiny onions about the size of your thumbnail that you pop in the ground and they grow up to be a, a beautiful onion. And they've grown really well, but disaster, calamity. My next door allotment neighbour, Tony, uh, must have inadvertently bought some diseased onions and the disease spread across the allotment road and infected my onions. Fortunately, with various dodges and the fact that I planted them early because we had such wonderful weather in February, they've actually managed to pull through. Whether they'll store or not, I don't know, because the disease downy mildew gets into them and can shorten the storage period. But they've reached a good size, so I'm reasonably pleased, and poor old Tony didn't harvest anything, but perhaps he'll spend more on buying his onion sets next year. One of the nasty things about downy mildew is that it leaves spores in the soil called oospores. That's got a double O at the beginning and then spores. And they can persist for five years in the soil. So I can't grow onions in this spot for another five years. So I practice crop rotation and the onions will move across the allotment path next year and go in where the potatoes are growing now and the carrots will grow where the onions are. Let's go and look at the peas and beans. One of my favourite vegetables are peas and also broad beans. Some people call them faba beans. They grow very well, especially in a wet summer like this one, and I grow them in the commercial method. Traditionally, you grow peas against twigs or netting and you grow them tall. I find those are impossible to defend against a deer, so I grow them thickly in wide rows of about um, 30 centimetres, that's a foot across, and then cover them with a plastic mesh that keeps the deer off and also some of the pests that afflict the peas and I found that works very well. So here we've got some peas that were sown, oh when did I sow these peas? I probably sowed these peas in June and they're in full flower and they've also set in their first pods. If it rains when peas are in flower it's really excellent because it encourages a bigger set of pods and these are Monge 2 peas. They are quicker to pick, you don't have to shell them, and any surplus can go in the freezer for winter soups and stews. So I always like to grow some of those. And as soon as they've finished, up they're pulled, and I immediately then sow a crop for improving the soil. It's called a cover crop or a green manure, and I particularly like using Italian ryegrass, which is an annual grass, extremely quick growing, and something called crimson clover, which is an annual clover. And with luck, next spring, this area will be covered in a thick layer of uh, grass and clover, which I can then incorporate into the soil and it will provide food for the next crop. Then the next crop scheduled for this area are pumpkins and squashes, which by happy chance we're standing next to. So this is my pumpkin and squash plot. Squashes and pumpkins range widely. So they need lots of space. You want to ideally give them two meters between the rows, that's two yards and a yard or a meter between each plant. And I've put out quite a collection here and they're just really beginning to take off. My favorite ones are Crown Prince, which have got beautiful, strong blue fruits and last forever. I've got some butternuts and I've got some golden yellow pumpkins. And I've also put in a load of tomatoes in here. Some of them are bush tomatoes. This one's called Red Alert and Red Alert has the amazing property of maturing very early so it's already got some ripe fruit on it and it's still flowering away it's absolutely covered in flowers 
of course, when a tomato is covered in flowers, you're not going to get great big beefsteak fruits. And these are quite small fruits, but there's so many of them and they're so early, but they're well worth growing. However, they'll have cropped themselves to death in a couple of weeks. And then there's another row of tomatoes growing behind, protected with heavy fencing against deer. Last year, the deer broke in and they carefully and selectively nibbled out every tomato fruit. This year, they're heavily defended, and I'm hoping to be able to harvest some tomatoes, particularly because these are blight-resistant tomatoes. In Britain, tomato blight, or potato blight, destroys tomatoes very readily, but these have been bred to be resistant, so although the blight will get them eventually, I should be able to harvest a, a good crop. And there's also a little patch of courgettes in there. Three courgette plants is enough for most people. I've got six, so I've got rather too many courgettes, but I shall just have to take off some flowers and fruit and the leaves to slow them down a bit. They're just such a, a useful vegetable to have, but you soon get tired of them and then the neighbours begin to avoid you and you keep offering them to them. The summer's ticking on and what happens now is the days get shorter and the sun doesn't rise as high and the rate of growth of plants slows down. So although conditions are great for growing, Things that you sow now, unless they're really, really fast growing, are not going to be ready before winter comes. There's still time right now, in the south at least, to sow quick growing things. I've just sown some turnips. I've also sown a load of endives and chicories for salads. But other than that, happily, there's not a great deal to do. I've still got just the last few cauliflowers to plant out for cropping next year. I'll sow some salad onions to pull in April. And then I'll take it easy, I think. I'm just going to harvest stuff and enjoy it, do a bit of pickling and preserving. I'm going to sow my cover crops. I'm going to have a jolly good weed. And it's easy street, really, until September when it's time to sow some lettuces and spinach for overwintering. So my best advice is that while the weather's so nice and it's going to stay nice until autumn arrives, get out there, harvest your crops and enjoy the fruits of all your hard work. We're back in the studio. When talking on my allotment, I mentioned that I grow blight-resistant tomatoes. Tomato blight is a very destructive disease, and this year we're getting a lot of questions about it. Not surprisingly, given that it's a disease that is promoted by wet weather. And the best way to protect against it is to grow your tomatoes in a greenhouse, where the leaves can be kept dry. But of course, there's a limit to what people can do and how many greenhouses they can fit, even if greenhouses are allowed on their allotment. So outdoors, it's a very good idea, particularly in the western part of the country where the rainfall is heavier, to grow blight-resistant tomatoes. These are not completely resistant, but at least you should be able to get a crop in most seasons. Once you see infected plants, which are shown by dark spots on the edge of leaves, with a white mycelium or fungal growth underneath, or blotches on the fruits and stems, all that can be done is to discard the affected foliage, either put it on the bonfire or bury it in a deep hole so that no resting spores are left in the soil and save what you can. And now for our next story, let's head to RHS Garden Wisley's student allotments to gather a range of perspectives on growing your own fruit and veg. You'll be hearing from Pete Wilson, the team leader of the School of Horticulture and a very keen allotment grower, and from Sean Ward and Leo McEwen, two of the school's first-year students.
So my name's Pete Wilson. I'm team leader for the School of Horticulture here at RHS Wisley. And what that means is I manage the student and apprentice delivery, the garden facing side of it. So at the moment we're sitting up at the student allotment and community allotment site up at RHS Wisley, which is right in the middle of the edible garden in the orchard. This site is two functions really. We have our community plot holders who get an allotment here for a year. The other half, and this is where my interest really lies, is the students. So our first year of our diploma in horticultural practice, the students get set an allotment as a project. So they get a three by eight metre space. We set them with a particular setup of seeds just to try and kind of make it fair. So they all get a set of seeds, tubers and various things. They also get some wild card choices. So they get to choose something that they're excited about growing. And there's a little bit of flexibility. Things creep in that aren't on the list and that's okay. But they get marked on things like their productivity, how they look after the crops, how they look after the soil, which is really important. Aesthetics and, you know, things like how they're harvesting, how they're cropping, how they're protecting the plants from various different things. So the goal really is to make sure that edible growing and effectively production horticultural techniques are part of the syllabus and it's something that's you know hugely connected to our sustainability goals and to you know people's understanding of where their food comes from as well as being you know a real foundation of horticulture you know we didn't start out growing pretty things we started out growing things we could eat pretty things came later I might actually cut back some of this purslane as well this is just starting to go over yeah, so we had a plot that was spare that obviously we don't want an empty plot. And it was a nice opportunity for both myself and my technician, Cherry, to take on a plot really here with a slightly different remit, I guess, to what the students have. So they're being marked at intervals. They've got the kind of necessity for it to be productive. They've got a more limited palette of seeds. So what we've tried to achieve here is something which is a bit more in line with how I personally do my allotments we're still on the same principles we're still doing no dig we're still carefully managing the soil first and foremost and the planting second but I like to allow things to to self-seed and, and grow where they want I'm not a big fan of growing neat little rows of things I like pockets of stuff you know and there's a whole bunch of different benefits to that for me part of it is that there's a better bit of ground cover so I find I do less watering in dry spells and that was quite tangible in June when we had that really sort of long period of really unusual heat and really low rainfall the allotment was taking a lot less water you know there's things for pollinators in there I, I leave seed heads on plants that other people might deadhead because I really enjoy watching the flocks of goldfinches come in here and take the seeds from the cornflowers I grow things in little pockets here and there so if the cabbage white butterflies land on one set of brassicas they don't necessarily get on all of them things just don't get eaten as much and uh, you know for me it, it very much is uh, an aesthetic thing as well i'm a great believer that you know you don't have to choose between form and function you know it can be beautiful and productive and i like the fact that you can just rummage around in the undergrowth in my allotment and pull out beetroot or you know onions or carrots you can find a kalet plant nursing in there there's been some surprises you know we had a, a self-seeded courgette hybrid now they hybridize really regularly you don't always get something that's delicious or even edible so i left it in to fill a space because i like the big leaves as a texture you know i think that's important visually what it's ended up producing is as far as we can ascertain a cross between a courgette and a melon i had them rated as delicious from someone who's uh, harvested one and i'm waiting we've now got three enormous marrow sized ones that i'm waiting to harvest 
And again, that is just a, that is a result of that kind of mindset of experimenting, getting to know your site, getting to know your soil. I think for me, one of the things that I would say, if it, one of the most important things I grow at my allotment really is myself. I think it's, it teaches me a lot of things. One of them is patience. You know, it teaches me delayed gratification. It's a break from what can be quite hectic in modern life. It's not very often that you get to just stop and do something with your hands and, you know, not really be thinking about anything else other than what you're doing. And those little, those little moments of joy that you get, you know, there's a few of them through the year. Well, there's a lot of them through the year. You know, things like when the first peas are ripe and you get, you're shelling your first peas, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, it's incredibly rare for peas to make it from the allotment to the kitchen. They, they always get eaten in situ and it's one of the best bits of the year. You know, the first ripe tomato, it's just, there's nothing, the work that you put in is disproportionate sometimes to the end product, but the end product is so worth it, you know, 10 times over. It's about enough for one picking, I think. I'm Sean Ward. I'm on the first year of the RHS Wisley Diploma. So this year was the first time I've done any allotment growing. I grew a small scattering of edibles in pots on my mum's front driveway. Not that that quite classes as an allotment. So this year is the first year I've allotmented. So as I'm working on a no-dig bed, um, I'm trying to minimise soil disturbance as I pull these out. So I'm just twisting, leaving the roots in the soil and they will break down. So we have a lovely little no-dig plot out here in Surrey and that's been fantastic. Outside of work, we're in a bit of a strange living scenario. With the cost of living crisis this year, we, I say we, me and my partner, decided we needed a cheap way to live. So we bought this tiny little boat and it's moored on the riverway and it's been fantastic, but I, I do mean it's tiny. It's seven metres from front to back. So that's posed some challenges for two people that really like to be outside. We got on the waiting list for an allotment in the village and we're lucky enough to get one pretty promptly. So we moved here in September, we managed to get one by November and it's just been amazing. You know, it's been a garden, it's been a place we can have bonfires, it's been a place we can grow food and have a shed to put off-run tools, etc. Again, like, it's been so productive. I'm so amazed by comparatively how little work we've needed to put in to get a vast amount of food back. We no longer need to buy vegetables. The only struggle we're having now is like where to store and where to preserve. With that small living space, it's, that's a challenge. I think in modern horticulture, we're really keen on starting in modules in the greenhouse and then transplanting out to the beds. Where I've just been so busy trying to keep up with the coursework, etc., I've kind of leaned a bit more heavily on direct sowing this year, and it's just been fantastic. I think especially where we came into that June, which was ridden with drought, Having plants established directly in the soil seems that they have a deeper root run straight from the start. So they've been able to keep with that drought better than other crops that I've seen that have been started in the greenhouse and then transplanted out. I think also some of the most resource heavy things we have in horticulture are plastic pots and growing medium. So doing it directly in the soil kind of cuts off the requirement for both of those things, which is only a positive. Do you know, I'd like to grow a, a lot of similar things that I've grown this year, but more heritage varieties and more heirloom varieties. They are cultivars which tell a story. You know, so many of the modern cultivars have been bred for yield or for evenness of crop, for mass production. Although those things are really important for feeding a nation, 
they don't necessarily have that same uh, historical kind of significance. You can imagine an old family somewhere back along the lines saving seeds and having this special tomato that they really loved and passing the seeds down to their kids and so on and so forth. And I just think that's something special and to be cherished and something that shouldn't be lost in the busyness of the modern world. It's great for physical health, it's great for mental health, great for having a spiritual connection to the land, it's great for uh, having an understanding of where food comes from. I think that anybody who hasn't tried growing at least a few simple food plants should have a go. Uh, you'll be hooked. <laughs> so I'm just focusing on getting the largest ones at the moment and letting the small ones grow on. And the plants will keep on cropping until there's no more flowers on them. Hi, I'm Leo, I'm 25 and I'm on the diploma course at Wisley studying horticulture as a student. This is not my first allotment. My first allotment was back at home in Dorset, which I started with my mum during COVID. It was a way to get out of the house, a way to pass the time. And especially when there was food shortages in the supermarket, it was a great way to bulk up our kitchen cupboards and yeah, really get in touch with nature. So I'm just pulling out some of the radish here. Coming from the coast, I was very anxious about growing in this climate where they have harsher frosts. We definitely got down to minus nine on the allotment here. But amazingly, I had my first planting of broad beans out and they did come through that minus nine that we had for a couple of days. And that was the crimson flowered broad bean, which normally suggests they plant out in the spring rather than the autumn. Another challenge I had was those broad beans. The first planting I put in, maybe because of the frost stress, although they survived it, they were there and attacked quite badly with the aphids. But I allowed them to stay there and then a big flood of ladybirds came by and saved them before the broad beans were damaged too much. Yeah, I'm just looking through the sweet corn to see which are the most ripe and ready to harvest. So this year I tried multi-sowing on most of the crops that I've used. So if you're sowing into module cells, you'll put a few seeds into one of the cells. And then when you plant them out, you leave them in there. And that allows you to have a few failures of germination. If you put three seeds in and only two come up, then you've got two to go out. So I've multi-sowed the beetroots and the onions. And the beetroots have grown massively and I've selected out the largest ones when I'm harvesting so that really hasn't affected it and I've grown a lot more in a smaller space. I've also played around with the spacings quite a bit mostly working off of recommended spacing for plants but I have shrunk the spacing and it's paid off because I've just had a larger yield of most of the crops. Here's a good one. To me, growing my own food means lowering food miles, helping to tackle food shortages, taking a little strain off of the system as a whole. Also knowing exactly where my food has come from, how it's being grown. And it also gives me great mental health benefits. And yeah, if I can spend my time during the day growing stuff that's gonna sustain my my body and my mind, that's the biggest thing for me. Thanks there to Pete, Sean and Leo. The allotment scheme we know and love today took about a century to become a standard perk of British life. It's a long, curious history, and it's one that ties into many political and social problems of the 18th and 19th century. And so for our last feature today, 
We're journeying back in time to take a deeper look at how allotments established a foothold here in the UK. Here's garden historian Twigs Way with the story. So allotments in this country really came about because of the impact of what's called the enclosure movements, which is briefly a movement by private landlords, private landholders, to completely repackage and redivide up the landscape, typically from about 1780 to 1830. And over this period, an enormous amount of land and landscape, millions and millions of acres, was parceled up from what many people may remember from their school day histories as the open field system, where there were three big fields in every parish and some woodland, and everybody got to walk nearly everywhere. And there were a lot of common rights involved in this. So I don't want to repeat everything that, you know, your O-level teachers told you years and years ago. But basically, there was a huge loss of rights and there was a huge loss in the ability of people to access landscape and also access, you know, food and land in which to grow or to gather foodstuffs. And actually, we were a byword for social commentators, not just in England, but in Europe as well, who said, you know, the British labourer is the poorest labourer in Europe because they have no land. And allotments were seen as one of many ways to try and solve this problem. The first wave of allotments were really very much either philanthropic landholders who were concerned for their, their labourers or the church. Because for a long time, they weren't compulsory, you know, the landholders, the parishes or whatever, they didn't actually have to give you an allotment. It was this, you know, this kind of bonus for being good, if you like. And so they came with this package of kind of what I call, when I'm giving a talk, I always call this social blackmail and people are kind of quite shocked. You know, they're going, oh, how could it be social blackmail? And you know, England is such a democratic country and all the rest of it. But actually, when you look at the lists, I mean, any allotment had usually a basic list of about 10 regulations. And that included things like going to church, not being dishonest, you know, not thieving, only using a spade to cultivate your land, because that meant that you couldn't take on too much land and you couldn't become a market, you couldn't sell on. But some of them had things like, you know, you shouldn't hang out washing on the allotments or you shouldn't let your children run around after dark if you had an allotment. A lot of these had that if you had an allotment, you were not allowed to go down the pub. So, you know, I don't know how many allotment holders nowadays would actually sign up for an allotment if we still had some of those clauses in them. The other one was that you weren't allowed to claim poor relief once you had an allotment. And this comes to the nub of why a lot of the creators of allotments at the parish level and at the landholder level, they didn't want to give people allotments except under this kind of philanthropic scheme because of the idea of poor relief. The, the worry was that if you had an allotment scheme going in your parish, people would flock to the parish, literally, to take up allotments and that they would become a burden on what was then called the poor relief, a system for relieving people who had fallen into hardship. 
So we're really pushing through into the 1880s and to the end of the 19th century, and that's when we start to get compulsory allotment provision. This is the main thing that everybody's heading for. Instead of this kind of reliance on the church feeling nice or giving it to people who come to church a lot or, you know, your favourite farm labourer gets to have an allotment, there's this real push for compulsory allotment provision in every parish so that everywhere there is a demand, there would be the ability to have an allotment. And this is absolutely fundamental to it because although you still get these rules, these sort of social blackmail rules, because you can still turn people off them, the idea is that we've finally got compulsory provisions so that you're not reliant on the attitude of the local landholders or the local church holder. That's, that's so important. That came in off the back of extended male franchise. So as more voters, you know, lower down the social level were able to vote, they were able to express their concerns with the allotments and we end up with the Allotment Act. And of course that's coming in at a time when allotments will start to leave the rural areas and come into the urban areas on the back of, you know, the movement of rural population into the urban areas. The interesting thing is that the rural allotments were always associated with kind of this social unrest and upheaval and this tension in the rural areas. But the urban allotments, because they kind of come in on the back of this compulsory provision as well, and it's a whole different setup in the urban areas, that actually doesn't get so tainted if I can use that word, that doesn't get so tainted with that kind of political unrest because the whole thing about poor relief and all the rest of it is totally different in the urban areas and totally different by that period anyway. By the 1890s, we've got an estimate of half a million allotments, you know, which is a huge increase. In the 1840s, there were only 100,000. You know, by 1890, we've got almost half a million. It may seem a small increase, but you've also got to look at where they are. And as you go into the, the early 20th century, you know, they're associated with, in many cases, the kind of hard-working lower middle classes. They become a kind of craze, they become a fashion, really, to go down to the allotment. And it's really interesting because you get a lot of postcards of this period, and the postcards of the period portray people very much of the kind of what I might call bank clerk, you know, if not a shopkeeper, certainly the kind of shop assistant kind of level. So, although we have got factory workers in some of the larger towns who have got allotments, you've got this feeling that the allotment is no longer for the kind of, you know, real poorest of the poor who are desperately starving in the rural areas and instead have moved into what you might call the kind of the blue collar scenario. That was Twigsway. We've included a link to her book, Allotments, in our show notes. And before you say anything, yes, this feature only covered the early history of allotments. But we're not leaving you hanging. Twigs will be joining us again later this month to give us the second part of the story. Well, that's about it for today. But before you go, 
I'd like to share some non-allotment gardening tips for those keen gardeners out there without allotment plots. August is the great time for taking cuttings. Hydrangea cuttings, for example, root very quickly this month. Choose non-flowering shoots, and because they're big cuttings, put one in each pot filled with a gritty compost mix, which is usually something like 50-50 peat-free compost and horticultural grit. Other good plants to try and root include penstemons, and also start thinking about propagating the evergreens like lavenders and rosemary. In all cases, try to choose non-flowering shoots. It can be quite difficult. I was looking at my penstemons and I couldn't find a single non-flowering shoot. But there we are, you have to do the best with what you can. Take young shoots and pull off the flowers and hope for the best. And also, somber to say it, but winter's not far away. So it's those tender plants like geraniums. Take cuttings of them too, to keep on the windowsill over winter in case the frost kills them before next spring. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.